Have you ever been told that the unfairness in the world, especially around issues like race, gender, and sexual orientation, are simply the way things are? When trying to understand if something is true, do you rely on objective sources like science, or do you look to authorities such as religious documents or leaders? In this week's episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, we bring on Reverend Mary Martin, author of The Seamstress, A Dystopian Tale, to talk about the dangers of dogma. Think that dogma is limited to just religious institutions? Think again. Reverend Mary Martin gives us a glimpse of the impact that dogma has on all of us by sharing some personal stories, and we also delve into how you can break free from dogmatic thinking. Finally, we also touch upon a book she published, The Seamstress, A Dystopian Tale, that uses fiction as a lens to examine this overall topic. It's time to grab your favorite beverage, sit in your favorite chair, and get ready for this week's episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, The Dangers of Dogma, with Reverend Mary Martin. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, created and hosted by The Mystic Geek. If you're looking to explore intriguing questions about the meaning of life and our place in the universe, then you're in the right spot. We dive into topics often discussed as sound bites on social media and take a deeper look, whether it's woo topics like astrology and mysticism, or seemingly mundane matters like technology and politics, we cover it all. We explore our own thoughts and beliefs, talk to experts, and uncover hidden meanings. These fascinating areas of exploration can help us question ourselves and better understand our world. Ready to grow and explore in your spiritual journey? We're glad you can join us. It's time to start your week off by being spiritual AF. And welcome back, listeners. We have Reverend Mary Martin with us today to talk about dogma, the good, bad, and ugly. Glad to have you here today, Mary. I'm happy to be here, Jessica. Awesome. My listeners are curious. If you don't mind, could you share a little bit more about yourself? Yes. I just turned 73. I have moved 31 times to the U.S., Canada, and Central America. I currently reside in Antigua, Guatemala, Central America. I'm a retired pastor. I hold a Bachelor of Theology and a three-year Master of Divinity and Degrees. And I'm a human rights activist, an author. I, I think my best attributes are that I am a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. And I consider myself a global citizen. What was it, 30, 31 times that you moved? 31 times. That's right. Met a lot of people. Some are still my friends today. I can barely imagine what it's like to have to move 31 times. It's like just moving once felt immense. How did you, how were you able to do that? Because it's like all the boxes, all of the logistics on there. The last couple of times I moved, actually everything was sold before I moved. I learned how to move. And I learn what I need and what I don't need. And I always look forward to it as a way to increase my understanding of the world. And I always look forward to meeting new people. It's not a burden. It's always been a delight. Thanks for sharing that. So we're going to talk a bit today about dogma. 
before we go into that topic and like the implications of dogma, I feel like we need to come to an understanding of some big key terms. So how would you define dogma? Oh, that's a good idea. A great place to start, Jessica. A common definition of dogma is that it's a principle or a set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. Got it. And you used an interesting word. You didn't say a religion. You said an authority. Because I thought that dogma was only associated with religion. And that's a common misconception and another dogma. Although I believe that religion greatly affects everyone, it does affect governments, societies, families, and businesses. Each organization sets up their own rules, and those rules become dogmas. So you go around teaching people about the impact that dogma can have on their life, whether it's religious, government, cultural, what have you. What inspired you to do that? I learned very young. I have a a twin brother who's deceased now, Mary and Michael. In our life, we were taught from a British system that everyone should have a title. I still keep one today as reverend, although people who know me, some refer to me as irreverent. Titles have a lot of baggage associated with them, even dogma. My twin brother was designated as Master Michael, and I was Miss Mary. I never liked it. Anything that was designated formally, we used those titles. And uh, Michael always assumed a role of authority. And my parents always gave my brother, Michael, a role of authority. When I went to church, I remember vividly uh, an announcement that women and girls could not wear dresses higher than the midpoint of their kneecap. And we already had a rule that Women and girls couldn't wear pants. I hated that one, too. I was raped when I was 17, a virgin, and I was wearing my school clothes. And I remember thinking, as our mind goes wild, that if I had been wearing pants, this may not have happened because it would have taken him longer to do what he did to me. Another role or dogma that I fought against And I wore certain clothes for church. I remember wearing a hat, gloves, a cute little dress, patent leather shoes with always white little socks and a little purse on my little arm because that was the way women were supposed to dress. I never associated until later that a hat meant submission that at one time women weren't allowed to be members of the church. And when we were allowed to be members of the church, there were conditions. One, that that her head had to be covered as a sign of submission. The other was that she would need to wear gloves because if she happened to be at the altar and if she happened to touch 
anything on the altar, it wouldn't be damaged or dirty by her hands. I learned in the seminary, I don't call it the seminary, the seminary, a place for men to learn and to lead. And learning that, what the men were taught, I challenged a lot because it seemed that there was little thought any deeper than the surface dogma stuff. There were some passages that I, as the only, usually woman in the class, this was in Canada, and certainly the only person of color, I would raise my hand and begrudgingly the male professor would say, oh, okay, here we go again. And my peers, all men, mostly white men would say, oh, here we go again. And they called those times, we're going to discuss a Mary passage. So they knew at those times, we were not going to just accept and gloss over this, what was usually the appropriate arguments, but that we were going to go even deeper. I learned through marriage that the man was the head of my life because I stood in a church with witnesses to profess before God and everybody there that I would love, honor, and obey this man for the rest of my life. And his response to me was, yes, you will love cherish and obey me for the rest of your life. I didn't like that. I didn't know how to do anything about it. This was common. This was normal. This was a dogma that affected me for the rest of my married life. And that included sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. When I talked to my mother, about those things that upset me in our sex life, my mother said, that's just the way it is. Men have needs and you're there to fulfill those needs. In the business world, it was very difficult to be treated as equal and even ostracized and sometimes threatened for even being in a space and with the idea that I deserved to be there, had a right to be there, that this was an appropriate place for me. I have many experiences, as we all. And so I, as a woman and a woman of color who has been a victim of this system, like many of us, I feel it's my duty to speak out against it. I know that in my first book, it's over. I've had it. Stop calling me girl. I write in there that even my mother said to me and others, why do you feel that you need to open your mouth? Why don't you just be quiet? My mother often told other people that out of all of my seven kids, Mary, who was the smallest and the most soft-spoken, will end up either dead or in jail. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I can see how that would motivate you to have those conversations with other people about the impact of dogma, especially since all of these established beliefs have had such an impact on your life. And those are things that you've been constantly challenging 
and being challenged by. Yeah, I can definitely see why you've made it your work to educate others about this, potentially even to, to turn the tide or make us be like you and think, why are we thinking this way? Why are we holding on to the status quo when it's not being helpful at all? So one of the things that you had talked about prior to our recording was that concept of dogma being deadly. And I think I have an idea where we're going with this because of what you've shared. How do you see dogma as being problematic or, or deadly or whatever descriptors you want to use for that? We know that dogma can become deadly. That's not dogma. That's a fact because our stories contain many who have died challenging dogma, right? They're called martyrs. Yeah. Also, soldiers and military all over the globe volunteer, or whether they're conscripted, they receive posthumous honors for state-sanctioned mayhem and murder, victims of physical Sexual and mental abuse are victims because of a system that perpetuates it. Many times victims will turn anger onto ourselves, turn it inward, cause a lot of damage to our health and our well-being and our relationships with others. We sometimes turn our anger toward the perpetrator, doing what was done to us or those we love. I think what we don't do often enough is to direct anger towards those institutional systems that have generated and perpetuate these abuses with sometimes impunity. We have a long way to go, I think. Women and men who have been abused, we were taught to be quiet, to keep secrets and to understand that this is just the way it is. Yeah. And I see that a lot in the United States. I'm sure you saw it as well with your experience, the whole, a lot of that anger being directed towards people, but not towards the institutions themselves. And that whole, it, as you said, it is the way it is. Why do you think people don't get angry at the institutions or direct their emotions and feelings and actions towards institutions, why do you think that they keep it more on that individual level? I think it's made that way in order to have power and control over others. You need to foster the notion that whatever the institution is, that it knows what it's doing and it's concerned about you. When actually institutions have no love for anyone, institutions are systems. But we give over our power. We give over our ability to think and to challenge, mm -hmm. especially when it's so large and you're just one person. So another tactic that is used is divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. As long as peoples are divided with issues that keep them preoccupied, they don't challenge the system. They just keep the focus on each other. Yeah. We've seen that it's like focus on the infighting or promoting the infighting as a way of preventing us from being collectively being able to make change. So we've been talking about this, like the impact of dogma and almost the point where dogma itself is 
causing us to divide amongst ourselves versus unifying against things that are corrupt or are unhealthy or that only serve some and not all. What can we do about this? I think that we often feel uneasy about something. Every time we have this sense of uneasiness or confusion about something that affects us or someone else, stop immediately and process it. Don't wait until later because the effects wear off and you forget about it or you think that it really wasn't that bad Mm -hmm. and we make excuses for it. Never settle for that's the way it is. As well as other tactics of manipulation, like it's your fault, or the paternalistic one is pat on the head that we just don't understand. When we take the time to think about it, we must think about it critically. And that's simply to identify the problem. It really doesn't take long to do that. And it can become a habit. But before you put those critical thinking skills to work, you have to first identify the problem you want solved. And then you research it. You study, not just from one venue, but many. Determine if the data is relevant. Because sometimes it's age old and it's not up to date. You know that the science books that I was taught in grade school and high school and college, they were all outdated. Ask questions, identify the best solution, present the solution first to yourself, analyze it and make your decision. And once you make your decision, tell someone, in fact, tell a lot of people, tell many people, write about it, think about it. It all sounds simple, which is amazing, but I know a lot of people are like, it's not easy. Granted, yeah, doing your own research, because most of us are so used to listening to what other people have to say, coming up with what our own understanding is of the situation, and then also putting ourselves out there when it comes to what those solutions can be. That's another thing that people might hold back on, because if they don't know that others are going to follow them on it they might feel tempted to hold back on it. We're social herd-based creatures. So it's usually the first one doing something. It can start a major change, but it's also the scariest point to be in until that second person comes in to affirm what you're saying is, yeah, this makes sense versus hearing crickets. Correct, Jessica. I encourage people to feel the fear because fear will be there. Some of us, some of you, have great reason to fear, but do it anyway. Feel the fear and do it anyway, because those in control that fear is going to overcome all your objections. That's how it's been. Mm -hmm. We see it. Fear is a motivator, isn't it? Uh, It is. In some cases, it is a good motivator. Don't cross the street when there's ongoing traffic or incoming traffic. And then sometimes it's meant to keep us safe, but it actually inhibits us. Correct. Correct. And you learn that even after you've been told not to cross the street or look both ways, you know that if you've almost been run over, you know that's true. So you've published a book recently 
ish. I think it was, what was it the seamstress, the dystopian tale. Yes. How does that tie into what we've talked about when it comes to dogma? I believe that life would be more free and pleasant if we understand that dogmas are simply belief systems that are not fact. And those belief systems must not be forced upon others. Remember that all creeds are sets of beliefs, whether in faith communities, governments, or other institutions and societies. Those who attend church services may regularly read the statement of faith. That's what it's called, a statement of faith. And faith is not fact. And also, science is ever-evolving. And that we, hopefully, desire to do no harm to others or ourselves. And that is how the book came to be. The Seamstress, a dystopian tale, is a story that deals with the ills of Eurocentricity, corruption of the monetary system, religiousness, human sexuality, and other pertinent issues that society deals with daily. Through the eyes of joy, a 90-year-old woman who refuses to wear clothes and has a special gift for freeing souls from torment, you will witness the effects of this oppressive systems and other oppressive systems on the lives of ordinary people and learn how to overcome them with wisdom, knowledge, and love. The Seamstress of Dystopian Tale is more than just a book. It's an invitation to question your reality and embrace your true self. It's a call to action to create a more just and compassionate world for everyone. It's a tapestry of dreams, imaginations, and experiences that will inspire you to think differently and live authentically. That's fascinating. So it's not just a novel or not just a book. It goes into a way of, of self-transformation through the eyes of others. Is that what I'm getting? Yes. The eyes of others is the eyes of one person, the naked seamstress. Got it. That's pretty cool. When did this book come out? It's out now. It's on Amazon. And by the way, as an outgrowth of my Issues about being a global citizen. The book is only an ebook. And I realized that the issues of computer technologies also affects our environment, but I made a choice to save the trees. That is legit there. I know there are some people who love having their paper books, but I believe that they would make sacrifices to gain the wisdom that you're sharing in the seamstress. So Hopefully people will pick it up. And also, too, you can listen to it. Ooh, there's an audiobook form? Yeah, if you have, like, Kindle has that capability. You can choose. I wasn't aware of that. That's awesome. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and then also for giving us a heads up on this book that you created for all of us on this. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we go today? I'm here to promote my books, to share with you. I'm available for energetic speaking engagements and 
am engaged in a global Stop Calling Me Girl campaign. Got it. Now, if people do want to follow up with you personally, where can they find you online? I can be reached by email at reverendmarymargin at hotmail.com. Of course, on Facebook. And my website is catchthevisionnow.com. Again, thank you so much for being with us here today, Mary. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. That was an insightful conversation, and Reverend Mary Martin brought up some important points. Dogma impacts everyone. It is not just within religion. You can find dogmatic thinking in our governments, our societies, our families, and even our businesses. Many beliefs around gender, race, sexual orientation, and the like are handed down to us by those we see as authorities. And thus, there are different types of dogma. We also discussed how damage caused by dogmas can be deadly, and that certain dogmas lead to cycles of injury and abuse. Reverend Mary Martin also challenges us to go beyond simply accepting the status quo, and to instead think about what we're experiencing, how to use critical thinking to consider different ways of responding and being. Now, let's pivot to what's coming up in future episodes. A week from now, on August 13th, we're bringing on Johanna Paulston to discuss finding faith after fundamentalism. Johanna shares her story about leaving Calvinism and finding her own spirituality and the impact that that has had on her overall life. The following week, on August 20th, we're bringing on Ashley Opon to discuss the impact of colonialism, especially in areas of the world that are not highlighted in our news cycle. With that, we're going to wrap up this week's episode. Remember, yes, we are a community-based species. And yes, sometimes that involves developing group rules so that we can live together. However, when those rules put people in a system where some are greater than or less than others, those rules can cause harm. Look at the things that you've been taught to believe about the world and yourself and ask yourself if those beliefs are true or if they are simply things that you've been taught and told are true because some authority figure says so rather than something objective like science. It's okay to question beliefs that you were raised with, especially if doing so helps to further a more equitable society. With that, have a spiritual AF week. Thank you for joining us for Spiritual AF Sundays. This show is hosted by the Mystic Geek, that's me. Got comments or questions from today's episode? You can either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com or send me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash themysticgeek. Don't worry, I'll put the link in the show notes. Help others start off their week with a spiritual AF Sunday by sharing this episode with them. Also, Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts help spiritual seekers find our show. So do the thing.